Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 11th of January, 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish, and we're delighted to be joined by Alex Thomas. Beg your pardon, Alex. Yeah. Alex Thompson, bringing us eastern approaches from the Netherlands and our very own Debbie Evans. Uh, we're going to get kicked off with uh, Tobias Elwood. Uh, now, he was on the... Uh, World at One, is it? I can't remember what the Radio 4 uh, lunchtime news program is called uh, yesterday. And frankly, some of the things that he had to say were quite spectacular because he's basically demanding that the UK uh, gets into direct war with, with Russia. Let's have a listen to this first uh, clip here. Do you agree with Professor Clark that we, the UK should be sending these tanks and more? Oh, yes, uh, absolutely. This is our war, but we've left the Ukrainians to do the fighting. It's not just the morale, uh, you know, the, the moralistic issue here. It's the fact that Russia is now pushing this against the wider West. So I very much welcome the fact that we're now sending or thinking about sending main battle tanks. It does show how far we've come in our willingness to look Putin in the eye and not be spooked by his rhetoric. I hope we will now see other main battle tanks, the Abrams, for example, the German Leopard. This is what Ukraine needs if it needs to be able to sort of regain and hold territory and push Russia back. OK, and your expectation would be that if the UK moves, it'll just be the first mover because others would follow. Well, absolutely right. And it, we have been too risk averse. We've lost that Cold War statecraft to look at Putin in the eye. We need to recognise we should not be leaving this to the Ukrainians. Absolutely, Russia is up for this fight. They can endure hardship much better than the West. They're retooling civilian industries. They're uh, mobilizing tens of thousands ready for a spring initiative. We need to be thinking about what 2023 means to us. So, Alex, uh, I'm just interested in your thoughts on this. What does 2023 mean to us? And uh, uh, he said very much there, if Britain leads the way, others will follow. Mike he, Mike, he has just encapsulated in a paragraph a century of British statecraft to contain Russia. I'm going to sound like some conspiracy theorist out of the Kremlin now, and we're going to be featuring Patrushev later, who's often being accused of that. But he said it all, hasn't he? The Brits used Johnny Foreigner, but Johnny Continental is not so uh, hard anymore. But the Ukrainians are still hardy fellows. I mean, this is the kind of stuff you would read in the 1960s in a... British Army training manual for what to do when you come up against the Reds. You know, in those days it said the Red Army contains a high proportion of countrymen and hardy fellows. And here is Elwood as if it's still the 1960s, really. He hasn't got the memo on the last half century. Uh, by the way, moralism. He said that we, we shouldn't be, or we should be moralistic, but we should go beyond moralism. Moralism or being moralistic is a narrow-minded concern for the morals of others. What will the Americans say? Well, I was astonished, Mike, because I think you could uh, see by my face as I watched that clip. Um, what is he lacking the mental acumen to make the right decisions or he's a dangerous idiot? I think it's the latter. Well, look, remember, uh, I mean, remember how I captioned him, uh, chief of the uh, sorry, uh, chair of the Defence Select Committee, 77 Brigade. Remember, he is still a serving 77 Brigade well, Lieutenant he, Colonel. Well, I'm going to say, no, he's not a proper officer. In, in my book, this man is, is, is playing at the job. Uh, but what is he talking about? Short of the UK going nuclear, we have no um, conventional capacity to do anything with the Russians or in the Ukrainian conflict at all. And to send 10 
uh, 10 tanks is, is an insult to the Ukrainians. So Tobias Elwood should be ashamed of himself. And if this is the quality of the military that we've got in 77 Brigade or elsewhere, then uh, Britain- We're in trouble. Yeah, we're in trouble, absolutely. <laughs> but it gets better. Let's have a look at this. The Russian Security Council secretary uh, has just been talking about basically saying Russia is now fighting NATO in Ukraine. It, it, it should, should, should that uneasiness about the, the sort of perception of that just be gone? Should it, should... I'm, I'm sorry, who will be being warned by? We should not listen to this le uh, rhetoric. We should have more confidence in ourselves to stand up to Putin. This is the theater of operations is in Ukraine. We should be stepping forward. NATO offense, uh, essentially has been benched. We should be doing far more to put this far out. And we're not doing that. You know, further on the strategy side as well. We should be looking to establish a weapons factory in eastern Poland, for example, so they can procure their own equipment. What does it mean for the UK's military readiness? We give, I mean, 12, we're upgrading the tanks. Do we need tanks or are, we, are they only ever going to be used in this form of proxy warfare? Well, you're right that there is, we are now absolutely involved in the proxy warfare and we should raise our hands to that. We should also recognise that the world is getting much, much more dangerous. And we are still on a peacetime defense budget. And the last integrated view that took place a couple of years ago actually slashed our capabilities in our army, our air force and our, and our navy. It's due for, to, you know, to be resubmitted, to be reviewed in a couple of months time. We need to increase defense spending for, to 3%. We've entered an era of insecurity. That's where we're going now. The idea that this is just going to, you know, the you, flames in Ukraine will then die down and we'll all go back to normal is completely new, wrong. So you, you'll notice there the uh, COVID-like language because we get the, we get the buzzword, the era of insecurity, but there's no chance of going back to normal. Uh, so get that word normal in there. Uh, but Alex, we've got an, an acknowledgement there that uh, this is a proxy war. I would have thought that was a great departure from historic practice, Mike, for anyone involved in military policy to admit to a proxy war. I mean, anyone who's roughly of your generation and mine, there's not that many years between us, will remember that history school, uh, history textbooks at school talked about proxy war as being the nasty underbelly of the post-1945 Anglo-American peace, uh, the Pax Americana. And now it's being openly admitted to, but not by the Americans, but by the Brits. What did you think? Well, I, I, I think this man is unbelievably dangerous if he's talking about an era of instability. That instability has been caused by his ilk at work, causing trouble in the world, inflating uh, Ukraine in all sorts of areas, which we can discuss a bit later, and ultimately throwing the Ukrainians at the Russians. So if we, if we want to sort the world out, what we need to do is remove people like Tobias Elwood from the political scene. Uh, well, let's look at a bit more insecurity then and bring the three stooges here on screen. There they are, Charles Michel, uh, Ursula von der Leyen, and who's that in the middle? Oh yes, Jens Stoltenberg. Uh, and this is uh, because the third NATO EU declaration has been made. That's really impressive. Uh, so Stoltenberg, uh, Michel and uh, Ursula von der Leyen together uh, yesterday signing this. They resolved to address growing geostrategic competition, resilience issues and the protection of critical infrastructures. Other priority areas of work will include emerging and disruptive technology space, uh, the security implications of climate change, 
uh, foreign interference and information manipulation. But here was the key thing, uh, because during their statement or during Jens Stoltenberg's statement afterwards, he said the NATO-EU partnership will become even more important once Finland and Sweden become full NATO members. The question is, is Sweden ever going to become a full NATO member? Because uh, the Swedish Prime Minister, very upset at Turkey, uh, so he's saying a day or two ago, Turkey has confirmed that we have done what we said we would do, but it also says that it wants things that we can't do, uh, that we don't want to do. Uh, so that's that's what he's saying. Uh, he went on to say, uh, I'm sorry, that's a, a duplicate, but nonetheless, in the meantime, in order to sort of get around this problem, uh, Alex, uh, the, the Swedish have decided that they're going to get... Uh, go into a joint US-Swedish defense cooperation agreement. The negotiations are beginning as announced by the uh, Department of State in the United States uh, a couple of days ago. Um, so uh, this seems to me like uh, Turkey putting uh, requirements on Sweden before they get membership, mostly related to the Kurds, um, but uh, Sweden wanting to press ahead with close, closer and closer ties to the United States uh, nonetheless. Yes, and um, of course the Swedes have a very close intelligence relationship with the British and Americans anyway. They're like a number of continental countries, almost in the Five Eyes. They're just one step down from that, but they're uh, militarily very capable. Turkey is very well known for throwing its weight around. It's uh, a couple of years ago been practicing uh, ethnic separatism uh, in its ministerial visits to the Netherlands and Germany. Now it has the, the chance of its lifetime because uh, it, it gets to veto uh, an accession. But there are people, including you know, quite high up uh, people in the US, not in the administration, but thinkers like John Bolton, the uh, nicknamed the walrus, who've openly been calling for Turkey to be kicked out of NATO and have said that de facto it's already behaving much like France under de Gaulle, as though it weren't a member. Possibly one resolution will be that Turkey is edged out in order to bring Sweden in. But short of that, as you've pointed out, America can do what Britain's been doing with uh, several continental countries and form a bilateral association whereby they are in military union with them anyway. Indeed. In the meantime, in Poland, uh, here they are. Uh, this is the Polish uh, defence minister. He has announced the formation of a new div uh, army division. Uh, it's going to be stationed along Poland's border with Belarus. Uh, and, uh, well, here's what they're saying. They're seeking to saturate uh, Eastern Poland with troops. Uh, our task, he said, is to build a strong Polish army to effectively deter our, uh, an aggressor, to make sure that the aggressor doesn't dare attack our country. Uh, so uh, here is the uh, Polish government announcement. Let's do a quick translation on this. The formation of a new division of the Polish army, the first infantry division of the legions has begun. Deputy Prime Minister, uh, this is the fifth tactical, uh, this is a quote by him, this is the fifth tactical union in the Polish army and the land forces of the Polish army. Uh, the division will be equipped with modern weapons. So uh, they're, <laughs> what are they talking about? They're talking about South Korean K-9 howitzers. Polish-made uh, Gladius reconnaissance and attack drones, uh, also Polish-made crab self-propelled guns, uh, and and so on. These are what they're describing as modern weapons. But nonetheless, uh, they're ramping looking up. to uh, ramping up uh, arming and militarizing the uh, eastern border. Indeed. Okay. Well, let's um, move on, if we may, to the BBC's reports on Solidar. Where am I going for that one? Oh, thank you. And. Um, well, quite remarkable. Uh, UK column talks about the subjects, and I've got to say we've been able to do that due to the excellent reports coming out from another uh, whole range of social media reporters. Um, but um, shortly 
after UK Columns report on Solidar, the BBC is forced to actually put out this headline. Uh, Ukraine war, Russia controls most of the pounded salt mine town Solidar. Um, forced to put out the statement, but as we'll see, the BBC still squirming because it doesn't like the truth about progress on the battlefield. So let's see how it constructs this. Solidar, which had a population of around 10,000 before the war, may be seen mainly as a stepping stone to capturing Bakhmud and its strategic value is questionable. Well, this is, of course, absolute nonsense because um, Bakhmud is is very important in its defense uh, of the eastern Donbass. And as we'll see, the Russians have taken every effort to break through. Uh, the article went on to say that Russia is unlikely to take Bakhmut. Well, this is a ridiculous statement. Uh, meanwhile, senior ministry of military official from the US Department of Defense said on Monday that there was a good portion of Solidar in Russian hands. Well, at the moment, Solidar is essentially uh, captured. There's a small escape corridor, but uh, Solidar is in Russian hands. Fighting around Bakhmut has been going on for months, said the official. And what he did describe correctly is that the exchanges on the battlefield were savage. But here's the uh, BBC doing what it does best with media, which is distracting uh, the audience onto minor issues. So at the end of the second paragraph there, we can see two British nationals have gone missing. We did talk about these two on Monday. Uh, they were last seen heading towards Solidar, where the fighting has been unbelievably uh, intense. And uh, now at the moment, nobody is sure where they are. But this, of course, is the human interest story, which the BBC is using to distract the reality of what's on the battlefield. So if we move on to this uh, report from a few hours ago, the BBC is now attempting to uh, draw everything into, well, we don't quite know what's happening on the ground. So the BBC, with its multi-billion pound budget, doesn't know what's happening in Ukraine. Um, but social reporters from Ukraine, Russia, and of course the West absolutely do know what's happening. So if we just come back to the UK column report on Monday, the key point we were making the, was that Bakhmut is a key strategic strong point for Ukraine. The Russians have attacked it by taking uh, Solidar in a flanking movement, and the Ukrainians have killed ultimately thousands, tens of thousands of Ukrainian soldiers trying to reinforce Bakhmut. And the situation is that the Russians are now punching through this line and the secondary Ukrainian defense lines, which you can see there around Slovyansk in the north, but effectively it's a circular area of much smaller urban areas. These are considerably weaker. So the BBC, totally unaware this is taking place on the battlefield, but on social media, the Russian advances are being accurately uh, mapped and you can see what's starting to happen. Of course, Bakhmud, uh, is either going to be flattened with more loss of life for the Ukrainians or those Ukrainian forces are going to be fully encircled and captured. Uh, here's another map showing the Russian progress on Solidar and the circled in blue Ukrainian reserve strong points, but these are much weaker positions. And uh, on the right, I've now inserted on the screen pro-Ukrainian social media support showing uh, the red, which is the uh, uh, 
um, extend to the Russian advance. And, <coughs> excuse me, and the key thing to remember is that the remaining Ukrainian defenses are increasingly, increase, increasingly vulnerable. So let's bring in this report, and this is where even Ukrainians now can see the reality. Uh, where uh, It's being reported here that the situation in Solidar is terrible. Russians captured more than half of the town and are encircling what is left at the same time. Ukraine needs a massive counteroffensive here, or it's lost, which would likely result in a domino effect, more areas lost soon. Well, it has been lost. Uh, but even if we look at the UK Ministry of Defence, uh, we've still got attempts made to play down what's actually happening on the battlefield. Um, so uh, the uh, UK Ministry of Defence um, doesn't really give much on Solidar. Uh, its capture, well, it's gone, and that means that Bakhmut is going to, is going to go. But uh, the Ministry of Defence continually playing down the reality on the battlefield. Alex, um, I've got a couple of film clips which I'm going to show of Russian reinforcements. Uh, but it is incredible that Ministry of Defence in UK now has simply become part of the propaganda machine of Ukraine. Indeed, and this has been going on for over a decade beforehand, like so much of the build-up to the war. But uh, the Defence Intelligence Service. Um, based at Whitehall in the Ministry of Defence, um, used to enjoy the universal acclaim of its American much bigger equivalent, the DIA, uh, for being extremely accurate and cautious in its assessments. And that was my experience in the decade of the 2000s. Then they were chopped to size, at one point literally being told, sack as many men as will not fit into the new building, uh, where the old one was sold off for a hotel. Uh, Northumberland Avenue, I think that was. And this has just gone on and on. And on the slide you just showed, two of the three points are forecasting with the adverb likely and unlikely. The DIS just didn't do that until recently. It assessed the situation on the ground. OK, thank you for that, Alex. Well, let's just have a look at these uh, couple of film clips. I'll, um, we'll show these on screen, but I'll talk, talk through. Of course, what we're seeing is the vast amount of um, Russian equipment which is coming into the area. So on social media, many people have been taking film footage showing huge um, trains with uh, weapons, heavy weapons, tanks, field artillery and clearly coming with soldiers and munitions. So this uh, simply goes on and on. And um, at the end of the day to say that Russia is running out of capability is pure nonsense. Uh, whereas if we go to the reality of the fighting, and I've only just given a very short clip here, of course, we've been told for months that the Russians are running out of uh, artillery shells. Uh, this is a picture of reality on the front. Very lucky for the people in the vehicle that they didn't get close enough to this incoming round. But the reality is that Russia is using some immensely powerful weapons. And as a result, we are seeing um, huge numbers of tragic ca casualties um, on the Ukrainian side. Now, how is UK helping this bloodshed? Well, let's go to the MOD again to have a look at a training film for Ukrainian soldiers in UK. It's the very first time for us being in the United Kingdom. But in just a couple of days, just by building those interpersonal relationships, 
we became as a family, a big family. Project Spring Generation. We are delivering training for people who are going to be fighting in a few weeks' time, and there's a real sense of purpose behind that. The training of a number of Ukrainian Armed Forces personnel to operate six different vehicle types. The CVRT Spartan, Mastiff, Husky, Wolfhound. Anything that's got a gun, anything that's armoured is trained here in Bovington. Bovington training area is really unrivaled anywhere else in the UK. The training area and the training facilities are outstanding for us, meeting all our expectations and even overpassing them. I expected it to be very difficult and complicated. They enjoy pretty much everything, just being in another country. Training-wise, whatever we're asking to provide us to better meet our expectation, everything just boom and done. It's so easy to work with you. And I do appreciate everything what you guys do in your country doing for us and this particular organization is doing for my particular organization. Well, Mike, I don't know what you thought about that, of course, with the emotive music, but I, I find this a tragic film because ultimately what is going to happen to those men is they're going to be killed on the battlefield. Uh, mercenaries in Ukraine are now talking about the fact that um, the new troops with minimal training from Britain or elsewhere are simply being killed as they come into the frontline sector because they're still utterly unprepared for the scale of warfare. And of course, the um, officer there talking about six, six different types of vehicles. So this is complete nonsense. How are the Ukrainians going to be able to handle all these different types of vehicles? And to say that we're going to give them 10 Challenger tanks in order to fight the Russians in the Donbass is outrageous. So if we have a look at these innocents on screen, um, here they are, they're going to be sent back to Ukraine and the result is going to be that within a few weeks they are going to be dead. And they're going to be dead partly because they will believe that they've been trained to take the Russians on in the scale of warfare that's taking place in the Donbass. Some of our uh, viewers have already commented on the massive explosion that we showed in the earlier video clip. And of course Putin is now saying he's going to use more of what he calls the special weapons, which are proving so effective at breaking down the Ukrainian uh, defences. So, Alex, I think you've got a few words to say here to the Ukrainian people. I have, and I said this first in our Christmas special, but if we bring that slide on screen, I will uh, reveal the message because it's very apt, given what we have just uh, been been seeing, which is... Uh, Шановні українці, ми глибоко співчуваємо вашій ситуації, але ви повинні розуміти, що загідні пропагандисти вас експлуатують. So, uh, dear Ukrainians, we profoundly sympathize with your situation, but you have to understand that you're being exploited by Western propagandists. And uh, I'm thinking very much of the kind of uh, extremely sincere officer uh, whom you just played uh, at Bovington training area. Uh, clearly, he's not been given a script. I'm well used to listening to Ukrainians and their spontaneous use of English. Uh, the man clearly meant what he said, but I think what you said just after playing the clip is true, Brian. And it's an example of what's uh, plagued both the Ukrainians and the Russians during this last year of warfare. They've now had such a wedge driven between them that they incorrectly assume they understand each other, being brother nations. 
and their uh, assumption of mindset and capability is just on both sides far apart from reality now. This gentleman, you know, I don't doubt his hardiness or the men un serving under him, uh, but he's woefully un unprepared for both the mindset and the capability of the Russians, and he's been to a large extent uh, brought in to a, a British mindset. So um, this one actually is uh, an illustration of the same problem from the other end, perhaps. Argumenti uh, Ifakti is a kind of Russian paper that we don't have an equivalent for in Britain. It deliberately tries to uh, bring the masses uh, highbrow thinking. Here they have interviewed, and for this we give a hat tip to Alexander Merkouris, who mentioned this just after the half-hour mark on his last uh, YouTube monologue last night. Um, Patrushev uh, is the uh, long-serving chief of the Russian Security Council, and before that he was the head of the Russian Security Service, the FSB. And he's very close to Putin, obviously in the running to succeed Putin, if it turns out to be someone of Putin's own generation and circle that does succeed him in due course. What he's saying in this interview, the headline that uh, Argumenti Ifakti has given to it, is that they, the Anglo-Americans, and he calls them the English in the article as well, um, they are trying to reduce Russia to Muscovy, to its medieval status. We've seen in Ukrainian maps on the wall of the uh, chief of military intelligence there that that thinking is now being parroted in Kiev as well. Let's bring that back on screen and see uh, what kind of things Patrushev is uh, is saying. This is from my translation software, because after you tipped me off to this, Brian, I didn't have time to translate it myself, uh, but I verified this against the original Russian in my own translation software. Four highlights. First, Patrushev is asked, are you saying that even the American authorities are not pursuing independent policies, that is, as a government? Patrushev replies, actually, or in fact, the American state is just a shell, but a conglomerate of huge corporations that rule America and are seeking to dominate the world. For these transnational corporations, uh, viewers might like to read Ian Davis's material, both on UKColumn.org and elsewhere, to understand the global public-private partnership. Patrushev says, for these transnationals, even US presidents are mere extras who can be shut out, as was done to Trump. All four assassinations of American presidents uh, I think uh, he's referring to historic ones going well back before JFK, are linked to the corporate trail, or he may be referring to the 1960s wave. It is no coincidence, says Patrushev, that a growing number of Americans are declaring that Republicans and Democrats are just two actors in the same play, one which has nothing to do with democracy. He goes on to say that Americans have a national debt of over $31 trillion. England's debt, he says Anglia, but then a lot of Russians and other uh, people in Eastern Europe just refer to Britain as Anglia, but it may be significant here. But he's saying England or Britain's debt of £2.4 trillion has become the highest since the Second World War and has exceeded 101% of gross domestic product. Namely, if we tried to stop all spending for a year and just pay off a debt, we still wouldn't manage it. Japan, he says, which is now being turned anti-Russian, as we've been reporting, Japan, with its public debt of almost $10 trillion, set a world record in the debt-to-GDP ratio it amounts to more than 2.6 times as much debt as product. Only the countries, sorry, only those countries is better English. Only such countries as consider themselves masters of the world are not going to pay those debts. Patrushev goes on, and I'll pass it back to Brian and Mike for comment in a moment. In a world undergoing drastic change, corporations are aiming to maintain a system of global exploitation. At its head is an elite of businessmen who do not associate themselves with any state. It's sounding like uh, you're and my talked at alternative view, isn't it? And I know that Patrushev's accused of various uh, conspiracy theories, including within Russia, but there has more and, he has more and more weight to it. Underneath this, the, what, what Ian Davis would call the global public partnership, 
public-private partnership layer is, according to Patrushev, the so-called developed nations of the world, and then what the Russians often call the Zolotoy Milliard, the, the golden billion, the happy few of the world. And then there's the rest of humanity, contemptuously referred to as the third world. The interviewer says, so according to this logic, it seems Russia doesn't even have that doesn't have a very enviable place in the hierarchy. Patrushev replies, there is no place for Russia in the West. Russia irritates a bunch of world powers uh, because it has rich resources, a vast territory, intelligent and self-sufficient people who love their country, its traditions and history. Much of this is true of Ukraine as well, gentlemen, to be fair, but uh, we seem to have harnessed it, that. Finally, and I won't read the whole of this, um, but with a nod to the kind of thinking that Matthew Ayrett is popularising, that the potential of mankind is far from exhausted, which was made into a subheading by the article, the journalist uh, for Akumienti Ifakti said, let's get back to these transnational corporations and the influence they have on national governments. You're saying that it's an almost limitless influence. What are their methods? And then, well, perhaps to break the mon monotony, uh, either Brian or Mike might, might want to read some of that, and then uh, you can comment before we go on. Uh Right, okay, um, let's have a look. These, these, meth uh, these methods are the most cynical. Some of them are experiments with dangerous pathogens and viruses in military biological laboratories, which are supervised by the Pentagon. They're unceremoniously engaged in moral and moral corruption of the society. We'll be talking a bit more about that later in this news. The West has mastered the zombification of people by means of mass propaganda and now aims to use cognitive weapons, influencing each person with the help of information technologies and neuropsychology methods. We can't fault this, Alex, because this is accurate, this is true. And indeed, the UK column has been, I'm going to say, leading in warning people about the psychological attack on people living in UK and the West. We've been doing this for a great many years. So it's remarkable that this man, whatever we say about him, is coming straight in on the button describing who we should really be fighting, which of course are the people that are implementing these policies in the UK, the US and the West. Yeah, I, I think that's fair. Um, the whole Russian thinking society, the whole of former Soviet society before the, the rivenness we got over Ukraine, uh, was talking about this concept of the golden billion. And they've long seen City of London and Manhattan plots to reduce Russia and in their own territories in the West and in the, the suzerains of the West around the world to reduce population. And Patrushov says in this, this piece, uh, whether you look at the sexual agenda or the genetic manipulation agenda, um, and they've been saying this for years, it's all about population reduction. And even if you take it a bit more conspiratorial and say that some people are expecting some kind of uh, astronomical event and others expecting a, a, a real pandemic of uh, untold magnitude, Whichever route you go down in trying to work out what's in the heads of the people who pull the strings of Western governments, I think this, this essentially Russian thinking is more and more correct, that uh, at the end of it, whatever nefarious agenda you think there is, uh, the thinking is with a lot fewer people, um, we, could, we could make this system work. Even the financialization of digital identity seems to be ultimately predicated upon the idea of far fewer people in the world. But let's move to France, in fact, picking up on the British press, because one of our alert French viewers has noted that, and I didn't see this in the Daily Telegraph itself, but um, a telegram channel in French, Ervan Castel, has already quoted the Daily Telegraph as saying that it's France that's kicking off the next uh, moves towards uh, an open Third World War. And uh, they're picking up particularly here 
on France's decision to send the American, sorry, the Ukrainians some of their wheeled tanks, uh, because this is the, the this is the freeze time of year when the roads are impassable uh, in Ukraine and Russia, and uh, France is attempting to obviate this or allowing the Ukrainians to by sending the AMX 10RC, which are char à roue, so they're non-tracked vehicles, supposedly better able to cope with the slush and mud and, 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 and nascent snow that's on the ground. And the, um, the, the Daily, Daily Telegraph, as picked up by this French channel, is saying that Macron, by sending these, has uh, crossed red lines. He's crossed the Rubicon, uh, violated the military taboo, and has become the first Western leader who has decided on such a step. Um, and then in his own words, Erdogan Castel adds, whether the puppet is Sarkozy, Hollande or Macron, France remains a major actor in uh, global chaos and conflagration. And this overlaps with what Mike was presenting a bit earlier, but Le Figaro, in its international section, has already picked up on yesterday's Brussels meeting. Both the EU and NATO are headquartered in Brussels, so they had a, a home match, as it were, when they met yesterday. And uh, what they're picking up on is that uh, the, the decision yesterday, Tuesday the 10th of January, was to give the Ukrainians whatever they think is necessary. And a, a separate French news report, which I don't have on screen, is quoting Stoltenberg as having said, presumably yesterday, uh, that weapons are the, the road to peace. That's as Orwellian as these things are now getting. The French press is also picking up on the neighbouring Germany, sending its foreign minister, Annalena Baerbock, of whom we've been reporting a bit lately, uh, and her making her third visit uh, to Ukraine since the war started. She's chosen to make uh, a symbolic visit to Kharkiv, or Kharkov, the second city of Ukraine, very, very close to the Russian border, and uh, hence also to the front lines of Russian troops. And she's decided to make uh, Russia, uh, sorry, Kharkov, the symbol of Ukrainian defiance. In fairness, I know we're often accused of uh, favoring Russia in our coverage of this war. Kharkov has had a lot of mass destruction of black blocks of flats, and it gives the light to the to one extreme position in the war, which is that Russia has only done targeted precision bombing. I think hundreds of thousands of people have become homeless as a result of bombing. The question is whether Russia was military justified uh, in, in bombing targets and what was being held at those locations. But there has been a lot of desolation there. And if we bring that back on screen, uh, the conclusion of this piece uh, says that this is the third time that Baerbock, Baerbock has gone to the Ukraine since the invasion uh, last year. Um, uh, the, her first visits were to Kiev and to Butcher, which, where a lot of Westerners pay pilgrimage now uh, because it's become a kind of accepted uh, uh, a dictum, uh, nostrum, that it must have been the, the, the Russians who did all the uh, war crimes there. So um, that's, uh, that's so much for France. We'll move on to Germany uh, because viewers are tracking also what the Germans are giving. So uh, just to point out to viewers who wish to focus on this, that IFW, the Kiel Institute for the World Economy has a Ukraine support tracker. It's intending to bring facts and substance to the debate on su support in the, uh, in the rest of the world for the Ukraine war. So here they're expressing government commitments to the Ukrainians in terms of the a percentage of the gross domestic product of the country. And uh, you know, the, the real uh, heroes in this scheme are the Estonians and Latvians who are getting on for 1% of their whole GDP being given to Ukraine. Uh, obviously, Lithuania, Poland, Norway and the United Kingdom uh, are in the next bracket with around half a percent of GDP. Below them, Scandinavia, well, actually, it's North America first, and then most of the rest of Europe. The further you get from Ukraine westwards or southwards, the less fervent the support. But uh, 
that's actually, actually based on a key or working paper, the Ukraine support tracker. So people may find that a useful website. No doubt it will be in the show notes ere long. Zooming in on Germany, I have a little screen capture here. The German federal government in English has got a piece, a page on military support for Ukraine. Uh, I do love this this faulty English here, which, which reveals a thing or two. At the end of that page, it says so-called security capacity building. They don't know how ironic that sounds in English, uh, but it's not intended to be ironic. I'll just start this playing. This is what's been delivered already to the Ukrainians uh, by the Germans. And uh, anything which is involved is changes compared with the previous week. I may have to hit that once more in order to start the video playing. I beg your pardon, that's now going too quickly. Perhaps, Mike, you can start the video uh, playing there, uh, we're going to see that there's uh, 70 millimeter rocket launchers, uh, pickup trucks with with rockets, armored recovery vehicles, uh, tank transporter tractors, many pickups, generators. It seems perhaps the video is not going to work, but believe me, it's a long list. You can find it from that page. And the second half of the page is planned deliveries, and that's equally eyebrow raising. However. As Brian has reported before with relevant with reference to Britain, there's an undue emphasis on giving the men sleeping bags and uh, military uh, winter clothing. And the, the really uh, cutting edge stuff is in very small quantities, even from Germany's stocks, because 10 years ago, Germany slashed most of its stocks of main battle tanks and the like. So um, more symbolic, perhaps, than, uh, than real. Uh, but we'll go on to the final slide of uh, my segment here. Uh, which is regarding uh, the effects of the war as being reported in the BBC. So, first of all, from a coal mining area of Germany, Lutzerath, the BBC is reporting a standoff between the police and protesters on the site. And it's the nebulous tie into Ukraine, uh, which the viewer spotted. And you'll often find that the word amid is used in a headline to try to glue together things which really are chalk and cheese. So they're talking about, uh, they, they in a throwaway line, they admit that there's been a, 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 a standoff between uh, coal mining advocates and coal mining detractors in Germany for years in sight, including this one. But here, how's this for a piece of BBC editorialising? Russia's war on Ukraine has given it a greater significance, transforming it into a national symbol. Uh, the viewer wrote this. There is a report about this in North, North Rhine-Westphalia. Uh, the item is under the label Russia-Ukraine war. It has nothing to do with the war, says the local. The mine is already huge. Until a few years ago, we lived in the small village of Mazarat on the other side of the city. As the mine expanded, the village, some with medieval churches and buildings, were completely destroyed. So this was Germany increasing its coal mining output, much to the chagrin of some Germans, the protesters, uh, even before the war. The viewer says the villages were built anew and the people were moved, school, church, everything. They even put the new name in the new village and called it Neumatterat. When we asked why people were not protesting, because at that time they weren't, we were chillingly told that the few must suffer for the many. This was in turn, entirely internal German politics. An autobahn has been moved at least twice and been built along a new route. We return each year for a few works, weeks and we always wonder where the autobahn will have moved to this time. Meanwhile, the uh, war has real effects in far-flung parts of the world. Jubi, an Indonesian news site, is reporting that the provincial government of the Indonesian province of West Papua, formerly known as Irian Jaya, is asking people to anticipate a food crisis. There's the acting governor on screen, Paulus Waterpau. He's got a Dutch name because the Dutch were the colonial power there. Mr. Waterpau has said that they, uh, the land is a gift from God. It mustn't be sold. It's better to make the most of it to face the multidimensional crisis that may occur this year. And the Indonesian president has said the same. 
the governor has said that Papua must be alert to face all possible crises, especially food crises due to the war between Ukraine and Russia. If the crisis continues, says the governor, there's a possibility that food exports can no longer be carried out. So people will need to prepare land planted with crops that can be consumed and harvested in a short time. The provincial government is preparing regulations to encourage people to utilize idle land. It does seem that they, on the other side of the globe, they understand more of the real situation than we do in Europe. Uh, they've got less of our media, I'd suggest, uh, Alex, to answer that one. Um, okay, so if that's what's going on in Europe and Ukraine and the, the uh, knock-on effects of that, what about China? Well, uh, everybody will be glad to know that uh, the wonderful Rishi Sunak uh, and his Japanese counterpart uh, are meeting today at the Tower of London. Uh, and uh, well, this is all about setting the theatre, uh, Brian. This is all about setting a th the theatre. So this is what the British government ha had to say uh, in their press release. Uh, years of negotiation will culminate in the signing today, which will rapidly accelerate defence and security cooperation and allow the UK and Japan to deploy forces in one another's countries. It will also cement the UK's commitment to Indo-Pacific security, allowing both forces to plan and deliver larger scale, more complex military exercises. Now, Alex, before we sort of move on from this a, a little bit, I wanted to ask you about this idea of deploying forces in one another's countries, because I'm not aware that in these kind of bilateral defense and security agreements that this is a common thing. As far as I can see, the I can't remember the, the, the phrase that they used to, to describe this, but uh, it's now as of today, uh, Japan and Britain uh, Japan also has a similar arrangement with France and with Australia, but I, I'm not aware of any others anywhere. Um, so I thought that was a very interesting statement. The Daily Mail trying to uh, divert people's attention away, but again, but today by claiming that any Brits serving in Japan would be subject to the death penalty if they were to commit some kind of uh, criminal offence in Japan while they're deployed over there. But the, this isn't training, this is deployment. No, crucial distinction, and I'm equally unaware of any such precedent. Of course, the Americans, largely in Okinawa, have huge U.S. Marine presence, and every year, I'm afraid, there are stories of rape, pillage, and murder by some of the local troops. Uh, they don't get the death penalty because of that very reason, you know, that they're actually, they're under a different treaty arrangement on a different footing. But, you know, as usual, you should look at this through both ends. Is it that British, French, and Australian troops uh, of all three service branches will be sent to the uh, Japanese outer islands uh, for air defense, as the Americans already are? Or is it that Japanese, with their high-tech kit, which is under wraps, will be sent to Britain and France to protect what Britain and France no longer can protect? I think this gives more weight to Joseph Farrell's long-term suggestion that the Quad, the countries that contain China, is um, you know, one of the crucial arrangements in the world. It ties Japan into being a, a de facto member of Five Eyes and of the Anglo-American Military Alliance. Um, and at some point, uh, the idea is to, to bring Russia behind that, to isolate China you know, completely, even from its landward side. But you know, watch this space, because the Japanese have got a lot of technology that we don't know much about. Well, I think we need regime change in Russia before that could happen. But anyway, uh, let's just uh, move on to this Financial Times article. Uh, and U.S. military deepens ties with Japan and Philippines to prepare for China threat. Uh, this is what the article says. The U.S. and Japanese armed forces are rapidly integrating their command structure and scaling up combined operations as Washington and its Asian allies prepare for a possible conflict with China, such as a war over Taiwan, according to top Marine Corps General in Japan. Now, of course, this needs to be seen in the context of what we were, context of what we were reporting a couple of days ago, uh, with the Japan now being given the go-ahead to spend lots of money uh, against its own constitution uh, to remilitarize. So let's bring this uh, top Marine Corps general 
uh, on screen. Uh, here he is, Lieutenant, uh, Lieutenant General James Beerman. And this is what he had to say. We have, uh, why, we, why have we achieved the level of success we've achieved in Ukraine? Well, um, this may undermine everything else that he has to say here, but nonetheless, it goes on. A big part of that has been because after Russian aggression in 2014 and 2015, we earnestly got after preparing for future conflict. Uh, training for the Ukrainians, pre-positioning of supplies, identifica identification of sites from which we could operate, support, sustain operations. Uh, we call that setting the theater, uh, and we're setting the theater in Japan, in the Philippines, and other locations. That's quite an admission. This is basically saying we are preparing for war. Well, uh, we are preparing for war. We've been preparing for that war for some years, but it's just we haven't bothered to tell the American or the British public what's going on. And I'll just add in here that uh, UK column viewers are commenting that as we're reporting on these unfolding but largely unknown events, uh, none of it was debated in the national parliaments. So we're now seeing effectively the military acting as though it was able to make decisions for itself. Um, so it's interesting you say that because uh, Rishi will sign this uh, agreement with Japan, this defence agreement with Japan. That will go to Parliament uh, in the next couple of weeks. And so there is an opportunity for MPs to um, perhaps reject it. Um, and so uh, maybe that's an opportunity for people to start uh, contacting their MPs and having a discussion about it. But in the meantime, uh, obviously China is starting to get uh, more annoyed with what's going on uh, here. And uh, so this is Voice of America uh, saying China snubs U.S. military outreach, uh, outreach sorry, ahead of expected Blinken visit. Uh, according to U.S. diplomatic sources who spoke in background when discussing the sensitive issue, the proposed call on Friday between Defence Secretary Lloyd Austin and Chinese Defence Minister uh, was cancelled after Beijing declined to participate. After the Pentagon was asked about Austin's contacts with the Chinese counterpart, uh, the Pentagon said, well, basically he hasn't spoken to them since November. So uh, we so sort of see the same type of situation, Alex, very briefly, the same type of situation developing here on a diplomatic level with China, uh, as we saw with Russia. Uh, particularly, you know, the, the, the West annoying the Russians to such a degree that they were sort of stepping back from proper discussions and then the blame falling on Russia for that. And, and the same thing, I'm quite sure we're going to start seeing headlines in the media in the not too distant future that China refuses to negotiate or discuss. Yes, these things have a multi-year trajectory to them. And so we could say it's roughly 2018 now in Russian terms in the US-China relationship. A couple of things will have to happen before there's a real proxy war, such as over Taiwan. Uh, one, if, we, if it follows the Russian trajectory anyway, which it probably will, uh, one will be that the Chinese will say, as the Russians did, that the Western leadership is incapable of reaching agreement and is, has lost its mind. And the next, uh, which they're close to in their, in their press announcements, but not at diplomatic level yet. And the, the second will be an ultimatum, such as Russia issued in autumn 2021, uh, on the basis of which, uh, when it's refused by the West, China will perhaps take military action. Yeah, OK, so uh, um, let's move on to Brazil, Alex. Just to show a few seconds of this silently, because there's a lot of turmoil and uncertainty over what's happening in uh, Brazil. Our best viewers in Brazil and from Brazil are assuring us that they really don't know much what's happening themselves. Uh, this also seems not to be playing, but it's just to show that uh, show people that there is footage of some relatively junior troops 
in Brazil uh, actually defecting to the Bolsonaro side. Of course, Bolsonaro, as you know, Bolsonaro is in Florida now and uh, reportedly has had uh, severe stomach pains uh, while he's been in Florida, possibly suspiciously, possibly not. Uh, Lula has now been uh, sworn in and taken on his office as the Brazilian president. Uh, we're deliberately not covering a great deal because it's a fast-moving situation with, as usual, with the regime change situations, a lot of fake news and unreliable sources out there not all of which is malicious. Some of it is just that this seems seems to be well-intentioned or to make money. However, I will show this, uh, which will play silently in the background, I hope, which is, no, again, that's failing, but this is just a, a clip of a, a Brazilian uh, ex-serviceman who for a minute and a half rips up most of the photographs that you can see in the display cabinet behind him of his time in the service. He says he feels ashamed now to have been a Brazilian serviceman because of the way that they've obeyed unconstitutional orders from the Supreme Judge there, Alexandre de Moraes. And uh, he, he saves one photograph, which is of his, his old mate from his service time, but all the rest and his medals go in the bin and the photographs get rip, ripped up. Pretty sad to see, uh, but you can see what's going on there. The Brazilian military's being brand destroyed. Some people inside the uh, movement of, of those who went into seize Congress and the presidential palace a few days ago reported that non-Brazilian troops, Spanish-speaking troops from perhaps Venezuela or Chile, or Bolivia were being deployed, the same countries who are now circling around Lula and uh, deploring the, the actions of the Bolsonarites uh, in Brasilia. That's a possibility. I just wanted to take people back five years to uh, my, uh, when I had a Facebook channel. Uh, I used, uh, I put this on up once, uh, exactly five years ago now, when we were getting to the stage of European Union military unification being hard to ignore. And uh, this perhaps explains a lot of things to do with the uh, the destruction of national militaries. Uh, in 2014, the city and Wall Street told then Prime Minister David Cameron, our investors are fed up waiting for the British to accept a military union. You have to force their hand. Hence the referendum, the referendum which Cameron thought he could win. And Juncker said, fine, but give us a bit of time to give us to awake the sleeping beauty of the Lisbon Treaty, a provision made in 2009 for military unification uh, under PESCO the acronym that was used. Cameron went ahead, but of course the British voted the wrong way. And then in 2018, the time when I was writing this, bogeyman Putin was providing the pretext for Europe to stand with Britain to the city's orders. And I think since then we have seen that go uh, the same way. And just in passing, intelnews.org is picking up on uh, a December uh, announcement by the German Foreign Intelligence Agency, the Bundesnachrichtendienst or BND, that one of its seniors in signals intelligence, my old profession, may have been turned by the Russians. Uh, it's possible that this has done, been done through blackmail, compromat. He's being painted as an AFD right-wing extremist. Who knows? Uh, but as I expected before I got to this point in the article, just by scrolling through it, the British are livid because these kinds of officers are treated as de facto NSA or GCHQ officers for an increasing number of purposes. So the Russians may have got quite a head start on uh, British and American signals intelligence through this turning. Does and you'd like to support us, uh, please head over to uh, community.ukcolumn.org. There are options to help us out there that would be very much appreciated and needed. Uh, or you can pick something up at the UK Column shop, uh, but please do share material on the various platforms. Um, now, uh, a quick, Alex, a quick advertisement here for um, a children's event in Scotland. David Scott is one of the speakers. Uh, there's a meeting in front of the Scottish Parliament, Holyrood, at the lower end of the Royal Mile, at noon on Thursday the 12th, that's tomorrow, 
and it protects children from the Scottish government's transgender obsession and the sexualisation agenda. Uh, the title of the gathering is We Stand Together for the Women and Children. So if you're anywhere near Edinburgh, do go and cheer David on. Okay, thank you. And Brian, uh, another one of Well, this was a, an, um, another rally which David was keen that we uh, alerted our viewers and listeners to. So this is anniversary of the biggest freedom rally Scotland has ever seen. Saturday, the 21st of January, 1pm Glasgow Green at the Commonwealth Monument. And uh, obviously, if you're able to travel north of the border or you're in Scotland, uh, perhaps you would consider turning up and giving your support. Uh, and then just finally on this little bit, uh, I'm, I'm going to put a health warning out here, so I do apologise for this in advance, but this is just such an egregious piece of propaganda because Rishi Sunak is going to make his first address to the nation tonight on BBC and ITV, and he put together a little propaganda piece to, to advertise it. Let's have a look. I guarantee that your priorities will be my priorities. I will only promise what I can deliver, and I will deliver what I promise. Well, I can't wait. Yeah. <laughs> well, I've chuckled, so that says it all. Um, do we really have a prime minister anymore? I don't think so. He's something different. He, he is now a representative of these globalist powers. So just as we've often said, the MPs are just representatives of their party. We've now got a prime minister who's representative of the globalist order. More on that. Yes, okay, so uh, the latest all-cause mortality statistics are out uh, from the Office for National Statistics, and that brings us right up to the 30th of December, 2022. Um, and so what, what do we know about 2022? Well, we had 650,000 uh, deaths registered in the UK in 2022. That's 9% more than 2019, and that's the highest access death levels uh, in any year since 1951 that wasn't declared a pandemic year by the government. So if we just look on the right hand side there, we see that uh, the, the death numbers for that week ending the 30th of December, a lot lower than the previous week. And that's because it was the Christmas week and most of the t statistics aren't in yet. So we will see uh, next week and the, the next couple of weeks uh, what is uh, coming next. Um, but uh, a piece of news from this morning then, and that is Andrew Bridgen, uh, MP, has had the whip removed. Uh, and, uh, well, this is because of a comment that he made with respect to COVID vaccines that they're causing serious harms, uh, that this is the biggest crime against humanity since the Holocaust. So it's not entirely clear whether it was the, the fact that he was campaigning on the vaccine issue or whether he dared to bring uh, the H word in uh, that has actually been the final straw. But the, here's Simon Hart, the Tory chief whip, uh, and this is what he had to say. Andrew Bridgen has crossed a line causing a great offence in, in the process. Uh, as a nation, we should be very proud of what we've achieved through the vaccination programme. Uh, the vaccine is the best defence against COVID that we have. Uh, misinformation about the vaccine causes harm and costs lives. I'm therefore removing the whip from Andrew Bridgen with immediate effect pending a formal investigation. So maybe we can say hello to Debbie at this point. Welcome to the programme. And uh, what are your thoughts on this? Oh my goodness, so many. I mean, how about misinformation of COVID-19? You know, um, Andrew Bridgen has been standing up um, largely because of what Dr. Asim Ahotra has been saying. Um, and and I, I do think too, we need to be looking at MPs. MPs are not standing up. Um, but I think we must remember that most, the majority of MPs are actually lawyers 
they're not scientists. And I know that Andrew Bridgen has been having a huge problem. I mean, he's really, really encountering a tough time getting people to believe him. So I think we must support Andrew Bridgen. And if he's watching, we would really love to talk to you. So um, the offers out there for an interview, we would love to talk to you further. Um, so those are my comments, Mike, so far. There's more because I know the vaccine injured have got quite a bit to say about this as well. So maybe we'll talk about it a bit more in extra. Okay, so, well, let's move on to your material then and patients encouraged to get the flu jab. Yeah, um, before I just jump into, into that, I would just like to make a correction from last week. Um, Dominic very kindly brought it to my attention with regards to something that um, we reported on thalidomide. He wanted to correct me, and quite rightly, so thank you so much, to say that despite knowing the harms on babies and the developmental um, abnormalities that were being seen, the congenital abnormalities, scientists still carried on testing on animals. They just carried on. And Dominic referred me to an excellent book that we'll hopefully be able, Alex will very kindly put in the show notes, called Sacred Cows and Geese by Greek and Greek. So I just wanted to correct that. So thank you very much to, to Dominic for that. So yes, jumping back into the NHS, unfortunately, um, we're looking at uh, flu jabs. Uh, patients are being encouraged to get their flu jabs because, of course, we've got 5,500 people apparently in hospital with flu and we've got 9,000 in hospital with COVID. So we're going to be pushing more flu jabs. It's also apparently a record year for people receiving NHS cancer treatment. Uh, they're blaming lockdown. They're blaming lockdown on pretty much everything. Uh, we're seeing a rise of this. We're seeing a rise of that. And they're going to blame it on lockdown. You can't get your statins for your heart um, disease. You're not able to get um, a face-to-face -face or an appointment for cancer during lockdown. So all of a sudden now we'll see increases. Um, so that goes without saying. Also, as you rightly said on Monday, Brian, you, you touched on it that the NHS is going to be discharging medically fit patients into care home beds. So they're going to invest 200 million into this. Now, isn't this what we saw the first time around when they decided to empty loads of patients into care homes? And we know how badly that went. Now, what does concern me is number one, we don't have the staff within the care homes to look after all these people. Number two, um, when they go into a care home, I would imagine that the vaccination squads will be after them. So they'll all be getting the bivalent vaccine. Um, number three, we've not just got vaccine squads, we've got dementia squads. And the dementia squads are going around and they're diagnosing patients without dementia symptoms. 95 out of 100, they boast, is their success rate on diagnosing dementia. And um, we all know what happens to patients with dementia that are neglected. So this is a very, very worrying story. Um, and the, the next thing really is we've been seeing porter cabins in hospitals for a while now, but we're going to be seeing more of them. In fact, we're going to be seeing a lot of them because they plan to put them all in hospital car parks to beat the overcrowding. Now, when I looked at this story, I was just like, really? Because the car parks at the moment are full of ambulances. However, I went to have a look at it um, and to see what Porter Cabin are actually doing. And let's have a look at a few images and uh, then a video of what Porter Cabin are doing. So you can see here, 
that uh, this is a major project, a really major project involving a lot of money with Porter Cabin linked in with the NHS. If we just go to the next slide, you'll see some of the lovely environments that you can expect to see in your hospital car park. Don't they look posh? And then I thought, well, I'll just go and see what, what's on YouTube with regards to um, Porter Cabin and, and what kind of facilities I mean, are we looking at operating theatres in car parks? What are we looking at here? So there's a very short video that will just show you the um, alliance between Porter Cabin and the NHS. I'm sure you'll all be very relieved. Yeah, it's been very good, actually. Um, it, it's been challenging for everyone um, for, because of the facilities that they wanted um, and not 100% clear cut of what they actually wanted at the start. But in terms of a working relationship, we all got on. Um, Elaine came into it after the de design stage. Um, but no, it, it, was, it was a pleasure for everyone to work together. And I think without that, team and everyone working together when we would have uh, wouldn't have got over the hurdles that we uh, that we had to i mean they've been great you know i've been um i've, I've been in and out of here quite a bit they we've we have you know we, it's easy to get in touch with them and then when i have questions um i'll email them and then pop in and you know we, for, just as a, a small example where we were going to put the medicine cabinet i was able to come in and decide where we were going to put that. Absolutely delighted with it and it, it was great that we could be so involved with the build teams. So myself and Joe were, um, were involved with, you know, weekly meetings for, certainly for the, for the, for, um, since the project began and, you know, to be able to make sure when, when we were putting things like the pendants in and the overhead tracking in and the light boxes I was able to come in and we were really clear where we were going to put them. Yeah, it was really, really important. She doesn't sound very sure, does she? But that's that's what we're going to expect in our hospital car parks um, from now on, um, a big contract. But, you know, before I jump into the MHRA, which is where I'm going to go next, um, I just want to say that there is so much going on within the NHS at the moment. It's, I, I barely know where to start. It's, it's so rapid. Um, and I have written a whole sheet of things that have, I have heard myself personally just this week. We're only on Wednesday. And, and I'll be talking about those in extra because I know that we don't have time in the main news. So I will be talking. And, and when I say that it's difficult to shock me, I am honestly shocked. So um, for those of you watching or able to get into extra, I will be talking about a little bit more to do with the NHS. But let's just go forward to the MHRA because of course the board meeting's coming up. Um, when and where, 17th of January, 10 to 12.45, they'll be discussing new declarations of interests on the agenda and also patient safety. I've submitted a question um, because I always do and I've received a reply back from the MHRA to say that my question has been um, 
it's been moved on. So hopefully it'll get answered within the board meeting. And that was basically my question was, when is the Patient Safety Commissioner going to be attending an MHRA board meeting? So please join me. If you just page in MHRA conferences into the search bar, you'll come up with where you can apply for tickets. So that's uh, MHRA board meeting. Now, I just want to come back uh, for a minute. Um, oh, yes, we've got a picture, uh, a slide, sorry, of the my question and uh, June Rain looking a little bit pious there, uh, saying that the safety of the public uh, always comes first. And you can freeze the screen for my question that I've submitted for the board meeting. So let's see if it gets answered. Now, I just wanted to go back quickly to the Do No Harm report, the MHRA uh, report that Baroness Cumberledge wrote. Uh, now, these faces are coming up over and over again. So bear with me because this is Baroness Cumberledge talking about the infected blood scandal. So she's involved and she knows about the infected blood and she says that she'll take the suffering of those that she's witnessed to her grave. So Baroness Cumberledge, just remember Baroness Cumberledge. So I wanted to see what else she had to say about other things that had caused harm in the past, because let's face it, we don't seem to be learning from the future. And I've got a little clip just to play you, I think you might see another familiar face too, of what Baroness Cumberledge was saying about Valparate. So just a very quick clip and listen carefully. Women told us that when they were pregnant and controlling their epilepsy with sodium valparate, they were never told that the unborn baby could be seriously damaged. They didn't know that the chances were one in two. One in two damaged babies. What a tragedy. I want to issue a full apology to, the, uh, to the, those who've suffered uh, and their families uh, for, the, for the frustration, for the time that it's taken, that they've taken to get, the, uh, to get their voices heard. So I just wanted to remind people that these people, uh, we're talking thalidomide, we're talking valparate, we're talking infected blood. We've been down this path many, many times before. We're now in a situation with the COVID-19 vaccines and we are repeating, or they are deliberately, in my opinion, repeating the same mistakes. I want to just take you back and thank you so much to everybody that's clicked on the infected blood um, uh, YouTube because it's now gone up to over well over 2,000 views and we know that they were only expecting um, figures in, in three so please keep sharing those there are three clips one two and three but I also wanted to go and look at the infected blood inquiry per se on YouTube so I clicked in and um, we didn't have time to get the video, but if you go to the YouTube channel for Infected Blood and you click on the top icon that says videos and you scroll down, you go on forever, for, literally forever. And I think, Mike, you um, can I bring you in, Mike, quickly? Because I think you actually witnessed that, didn't you? And you saw how far it went on. Yeah, huge numbers. I mean, it, it really is huge numbers. So then I thought, well, I'm just going to go and see. Let's see, because what Alex had said last week in Extra Time about June Rain sitting to take her oath, I thought I'd go and see how a few other people were taking oaths. And it surprised me. These are just a handful of people involved in the infected blood scandal. But clearly, you can see Dame June Rain sitting down, holding 
what I'm presuming is a Bible with her arm outstretched. You can see Jonathan Van Tam standing up holding a book. You can see Jeremy Hunt with the book sort of in a different angle standing up. And you can see Sir John Major. And then just to catch a, capture a few more, um, we've got, who have we got there? Lord David Owen um, standing away from the desk. We've got Dame Sally Davis standing holding the book. We've got um, David Meller and we've also got Andy Burnham. Now, these are just a few of the people that were involved in the infected blood inquiry. There are a lot more. So then I thought I wanted to go back to Dame June Rain's um, oath and her what she was saying on oath. And there are so many clips within this infected blood inquiry. I've, I can only capture just a few and I will carry on capturing them as the weeks go on. But I want you to have a look at the next clip, which June Rain is asked, really, who are who are the MHRA? Who are you accountable to? Now, Dame June Rain is the CEO of the MHRA. I would expect her to know who she is accountable to. Have a listen and see what you think. Paragraph 3.5 at the bottom. So this is in terms of the, the status of the MHRA. You say this, as an executive agency of the Department of Health and Social Care, the MHRA is able to protect public health with scientific integrity, independence in regulatory decision-making, operational delivery, and the necessary level of ministerial oversight and accountability to command public confidence. Um, I just wanted to pick up on a couple of issues there. Um, first of all, in terms of ministerial oversight, what is the, the typical, um, if there is a typical, degree of ministerial oversight of the MHRA's activities? The framework document does set out quite uh, helpfully uh, some of the uh, levels of oversight, but there are regular meetings, particularly quarterly, to look at how our accountabilities are delivered and our relationship via our sponsor department in the Department of Health and Social Care. Our sponsor team enables um, us to be held to account in terms of delivering our obligations. And other than um, accountability to the Department of, of Health and Social Care and, and, and its ministers. Is there any other body or organisation or parliamentary committee to whom the MHRA is directly accountable? Our accountability, I would say, is to our ministers and department. I believe that the Health and Social Care Select Committee would be a key focal point for holding us to account. I would need to think a little further if there are any other important clearly if there is a statutory inquiry such as this one um, obviously this is a really important discussion for us to be having um, and then in terms of independence um, to the MHRA is obviously institutionally independent of the pharmaceutical industry but equally it obviously has a very close working relationship with the pharmaceutical industry how does the um, the MHRA um, ensure that that, that that working relationship has, has proper boundaries? It's important that we have a clear conflict of interest policy so that our staff uh, do not hold uh, uh, interests. And our advisory committees are certainly similarly subject to clear processes of conflict of interest. And 
overall, the way we train our staff and so forth is to help to set that boundary while working closely with developers and understanding the, the science and, and uh, technology that they're using. So there is inevitably a dynamic there which is uh, interactive. And I think a very important safeguard is our independent commission on human medicines, where there is a separate and statutory responsibility to advise health ministers. And, and um, following the Cumberledge review, and we'll come back to the specific aspects of, of, of that review in due course, but have any particular steps been taken by the MHRA following that review to create further distance with the pharmaceutical industry? We've reviewed our conflicts of interest policy for all our uh, committee members and taken steps to, in terms of our internal governance, our board, non-executives and executives. And uh, as you will perhaps see, that these are um, taken very rigorously every time the board meets. I'll throw it back to you gentlemen for comment. Well, to me, it's word soup again from this lady. She is inherently in bed with the pharmaceutical industry. They're working together in partnership and she's just putting out a smokescreen of words to make it appear that there's some distance between them. The, the reason that her vocabulary is so essentially so bland is, is because the reality is that the MHRA and the pharmaceutical industry work together constantly on a daily basis and for her to try and say anything to the to the opposite is going to lead her into trouble so she's waffling is the best description i can give you i'd say that um uh, this is just my opinion i'd say she's lying because clearly what she's saying is 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 untrue but i mean that's subjective but what i'd like you to look at now is a short clip uh, of what Dame June Rain says with regards to yellow cards. And bearing in mind that this is the infected blood inquiry, you do hear mention of the COVID-19 vaccinations and you also hear mention CPRD, which is the data registry that goes between GPs and the MHRA. So have a listen to what she says about the yellow card uh, system. Um, the, but the fourth process you identify in paragraph 4.5 is the yellow card scheme. Um, can you, first of all, tell us what the yellow card scheme currently is? And bearing in mind you've been involved with it for some considerable period of time, how, if at all, it's changed uh, over the time you've been dealing with it? Currently, the yellow card scheme is actually, as it was initially intended, a notification and alerting mechanism for any user of a medicine, now it's any, not the doctors and dentists and coroners as it originally was, to inform us of a suspicion that a medicine or a medical device may have caused harm to a patient. And today, our main reporter base, if I can use that word, is members of the public during the COVID-19 pandemic. Members of the public told us fulsomely about what they had experienced with COVID-19 vaccines. And so today is functioning as a very, very effective um, alarming system, alerting system for us. Obviously, there are limitations, which we may well touch on if that would be helpful. And 
to redress those, we use other sources of data, such as the clinical practice research data link that we've mentioned. The second part, I believe, was how the scheme has evolved. Its original um, uh, establishment in the wake of the thalidomide tragedy was to ensure that doctors, dentists, and coroners would report, but by 2005, um, health professionals, including the entire health professional team, pharmacy, nursing, had been involved, and by 2005, patient reporting was beginning to be established. The other way, as well as expanding people who can report that we have improved the scheme, is making it easier to report using technology, an electronic web form, and now an app that can go on your phone. So making it easy, reaching out to the maximum number of people using medicines, but there's always more to be doing, and there will never be a complete reporting, except perhaps in some unusual cases, and therefore we need to look to other ways to pick up emerging risks. So to me, that's word soup for it's not fit for purpose. And the really effective alerting system, well, I'm sure those that are watching with vaccine injuries will be really happy to know that the MHRA have heard them because clearly she said there the public had spoken fulsomely about the COVID-19 vaccine serious adverse reactions. So they know, 100%. They know, and yet still they do nothing. Um, I don't know if you've got any comments, gentlemen, or if you just want me to jump to um, the next slide with regards to the coroners. Well, my, my response, Debbie, is that what she is saying, you, you, you've said that she's lying. And I think that the man, on, <coughs> excuse me, the man on the Clapham omnibus must come to that conclusion because if you say what are the MHRA doing to ensure the safety of people who take vaccines or being offered vaccines, they are doing nothing. They have done no quantitative risk assessment. They can put no evidence on the table that vaccines are safe. And then when she's put in front of, of, of an inquiry, having sworn an oath on the Bible, um, she comes out with word soup. So she's got something to hide. And of course, what she's hiding are the deaths and injuries caused by, <coughs> excuse me, vaccines. Yeah, thank you. And, and that brings us very neatly onto um, a tragic case, um, Jack Last, who um, the coroner has ruled that blood clot death was a direct result of the AstraZeneca COVID vaccine. Now, um, there'll be an interview coming out that I spoke to a wonderful lady called Alex, um, who lost her mum as a result of the AstraZeneca jab. It was put on the death certificate. And this, this story too just highlights, where are the coroners? Why aren't the coroners speaking out? And what I'm finding very alarming is that whilst we're now seeing causes, causation, being down to a manufacturer, to someone like AstraZeneca, they don't seem to have a legal obligation to attend an inquest. So my question is, where are you coroners? And if there are any coroners out there, please could you talk to us because we'd really like to know what you're seeing because we're, we're not hearing from anybody. Um, that aside, the UK have got to look forward to uh, the first mRNA cancer vaccine 
Now, um, this couple, these are these are the couple, the husband and wife team of BioNTech, Oslam Turek, um, the gentleman that you see there, uh, says that it's going to be fantastic to roll this out in the United Kingdom first. Originally, it was thought to be 2030 before they were going to actually bring out an mRNA vaccine. They're still on target for that, but they say that uh, the UK uh, will probably start as early as this September. Um, they're absolutely delighted that it will be the UK because it's one of the leading nations and they're a great partner for this endeavour. So that's what we've got to look forward to, being the first nation on the planet to experiment with our very own population and mRNA cancer vaccine. Okay, um, thank you very much for that, Debbie. Well, I don't get any warm feelings for that at all. And I noticed that uh, the professor was uh, very happy because of the progress in uh, genomics in UK. So he feels the whole genomic environment in UK is going to help him move forward. All right, thank you for that. Well, we've touched on the subject of applied psychology. Of course, government applied psychology was used to ramp up fear during the whole of the COVID-19 debacle and since then it's come to light that uh, psychology is being used everywhere on the population of UK. Let's just jump back and have a little look at what's been happening in Ukraine and uh, Ukraine on the map here but what, what do we want to do? We want to bring in our old friend BBC Media Action. Now it was only it it has only been the UK column that has alerted uh, viewers and listeners to the fact that uh, BBC Media Action worked inside Ukraine to transform and to enhance uh, Ukraine media around a company called Suspilny. And uh, if you have a look at their website now, you'll see that they've now gone to uh, reports on the hour. So this is very BBC. If you're in Ukraine, you're going to have B BBC uh, news drilled into your head via Suspilny every hour. But what else have they been doing? Well, they've been doing some very interesting studies, Lifeline Media, and uh, this one here, Transforming Gender Perceptions, if we bring those labels in. They were after a consultant for Lifeline Media, and then they were working to transform gender perceptions in Ukraine. So we've got a country at war being utterly destroyed, the people suffering. What is BBC Media Action doing as a charity? It isn't calming the war down or stopping it. No, no, it is gonna teach uh, Ukrainians how to uh, identify uh, the correct gender. Uh, I took this little clip from this lady, Nicola Bailey, from uh, Media Action's Insight blog, not saying she's doing anything wrong, but we're looking at what her organisation is doing. And look at the title, Supporting Media and Humanitarian Practitioners to Overcome Communication Challenges. And uh, what have we got? We've got humanitarian situation monitoring going on in May 2022 a focus on preferred communication channels and information needs. Well, who was preferring the channels? I would suggest that's the BBC and hence the British government. And what were their information needs? Now, where this le led us to, and there's a lot more work needed, but a whole group of um, NGOs in reality that are hoovering up data from Ukraine 
Who's funding all this? Well, of course, it's the British government. And I wonder whether some of this might be on your database, Mike. We'll have to do some work on this. But remember also that uh, BBC Media Action working with this organisation, National Democratic Institute. This is also buried inside Ukraine uh, in supporters, government, multilateral institutions, corporations that might be Coca-Cola mm. and individuals, many of whom are working or have worked within the US government and many of them are extremely wealthy commercial people. So BBC Media Action has helped unleash all of this, a combination of media and psychology inside Ukraine. And uh, I've just added a further organisation there, Strengthening Democracy Through Partnership. If you have a look at this organisation, you immediately question what it's really trying to do. So if we sum it up, what we can see is that BBC Media Action are essentially benefited from paid research in war zones. So it doesn't matter the suffering of the people. This is about media and psychology. Um, there's some text which you can freeze on screen talking about the fourth commitment which humanitarian agencies sign up to under the core human humanitarian standard uh, stating that communities and people affected by a crisis know their rights and entitlements. And so we're to uh, believe and be happy with the fact that it's going to be media action that is going to help teach people their rights. I think something rather different is coming along. This, um, we're going to leave viewers to investigate themselves, but this is part of an organisation called REACH, which is one of a nest of organisations hoovering up data on every part of people's lives in Ukraine. And uh, if we go on to this one, Impact, which we mentioned on the initial starting screen, uh, on this particular page of their website, you can scroll down and the data goes on forever. It is clear that essentially Ukrainians for all their suffering are simply being used as the lab rats while this data is hoovered up. But here's the detail of BBC Media Action. So this is a request for proposals, uh, media usage and gender norms. And it's, it's talking about Ukraine's national action plan for women, peace and security. Well, we don't see a lot of that in Ukraine at the moment. But have a look at the arrow at the bottom to get a feeling very quickly about what's going on here. A recent UN women rap, I beg your pardon, let's come back. A recent UN Women Rapid Gender Analysis showed the crisis as largely as, um, uh, uh, sorry, Mike, you'll have to help me exactly. there because I'm about to cough. Um, thank you. Pre-existing gender and intersectional equalities and discrimination with, quote, men subject to military conscription and women bearing the burden of childcare. Mike, what is the inference there that this is wrong and we should get the women away from the children and on the front line. It looks like it. It looks like it, doesn't it? Um, so here's a bit more of the proposal. I thought we'd put up the email address for the lady concerned. If any of our viewers want to send her a, a polite email to ask more about what this charity is doing. Uh, but here's the consultant in humanitarian lifeline media for Ukraine. So this is part of a promotion on BBC Media Action's uh, website. And if we have it, a look into this document, uh, it gets pretty interesting because 
Uh, through this project, BBC Media Action aims to facilitate and develop a common understanding between media, humanitarian, local actors on what good communication in a humanitarian crisis looks like and strengthen the working relationships between these different stakeholders. So this is BBC Media Action beginning to take control of society and um, what are they going to be teaching those local actors? Well, I think we know, but if you're not sure, if we go uh, further on through the spec of this, um, you will see that one of the lines says that consultants should have a good understanding of behavior change communication. So BBC Media Action has buried itself into Ukrainian media, and we are now going to see um, behavioural change techniques which have been used here in UK unleashed on an unsuspecting Ukrainian population. Personally, I think this is disgraceful. Uh, Alex, just a couple of words on where you see this going. Well, I can see the Ukrainian media ending up even more like the British media. Uh, I remember that in the early stages of this, uh, a reframed Georgian reporter, Natalia Antelava, was brought from BBC's Tbilisi operation to its Kiev operation uh, in order to kickstart the process. So the BBC's branches are using uh, Eastern Europeans against each other in this. You know, the, the end result of this is that uh, self-respecting uh, people with a lot of common sense in real life, who I know in Ukraine, uh, call me up and say, uh, we are tickled pink by the latest Ukrainian media report. One babushka put paid to a whole Russian platoon by locking them in her woodshed and set it, setting fire to them. They all burned alive. Tee hee hee, we are invincible. Uh, that's where this ends up, you know, with, with uh, uh, Uroboros loops of, of uh, Ukrainian media generation. Uh, but that takes us, I think, on to and finally, because uh, we have had a packed news today. More will go into extra, but a few things on screen for people. I had to put this in for Debbie's sake. Uh, an American pharmacy has unfortunately lost the functionality of some of its neon lettering, and it's now calling itself a harmacy uh, unintentionally. Someone is having a go at Health Canada uh, by suggesting that you get 10 maple leaf stamps on their loyalty card, and after 10 visits, you can get free euthanasia. Uh, staying with health, uh, a cartoon in the Daily Telegraph, a uh, patient on Ward 10 is seeing a consultant on the rounds. That doesn't happen very often anymore. And the consultant says, what you've got is incredibly rare. It's called a bed. Uh, one more on the health uh, system. We know now that this was paid for by an advertiser or uh, done by an advertising agency paid for by taxpayers' money. This awful look him in the eyes um, uh, set up. And in this particular skit on that uh, theme of 2020, 2021, the NHS uh, is saying, look him in the eyes and tell him you're not taking the Kraken variant seriously. And of course, it's the cartoon Kraken who is staring back at you. And the hands face space motto has been turned into turn off your TV news, which I think is very accurate. Uh, yeah. What else do we have in the yeah, end? That, finally? That's it. That's, that's it. the end of it. That's it, Alex. Yes. OK. OK, Alex, thank you very much for that. Now, you, you've got some really excellent material which we're going to bring in into extra time in a few minutes um, about the police and uh, well tyranny in the police so if you're able to join extra time as a paid up subscriber then do join us for that um, but I have to say that things are moving so quickly now with the events in UK and overseas it's very difficult to uh, to get all of the content into a news that we'd like to 
we will do our best in the coming days, but uh, it's coming in thick and fast. And it's, it's apparent from the comments that we've seen in our chat box today that many of you are now picking up on the fact that there's something seriously wrong in UK. And we would say a key starting point is just to think that perhaps your government doesn't have your best interests at heart. In reality, we are being attacked by our own government. Just try that line of thought and see how many of the issues that you're puzzled about, you suddenly start to get an answer. On that thought, we'll leave it there. Thanks very much for joining us and uh, sign in for extra time in a few moments. We'll say bye-bye.